Listen as I read. And when you pray, you must be like... Be, sorry, let me start over. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah. Peace be with you. Okay, so we're in a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we are right now, um, we worked our way all the way through the Lord's Prayer, uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, and then we've come back to the Lord's Prayer, and we're spending a handful of weeks here uh, in, in the Lord's Prayer, and this is uh, the, the fifth week that we've been uh, working our way uh, through, through this, this prayer. Um, and what, what happened last week is we hit the midway point. Really, uh, if you read commentaries or you see the structure of this prayer um, in Matthew chapter six, uh, last week we we hit the uh, we kind of got to the middle of of the prayer, and uh, it is uh, summarized by the phrase "on earth as it is in heaven." And so, what we had is in the the first couple phrases of the Lord's prayer, uh, there were some some really significant uh, ideas. And they were all ideas that were helping us, as Jesus is, is, is showing us how to pray, uh, Jesus begins by orienting us upward, uh, by, by informing us or showing us how to think about God, how to think about his rule and his reign on, uh, like in, in the world. And so, you know, it starts off with that, that phrase that his, his name, um, or, uh, yeah, hallowed be thy name. And that, that means that God's name would be set apart. And that idea of being set apart means that it's made central, that it's the most important thing, that it's, 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 it's regarded as unique. And, uh, and so uh, Jesus invites us into thinking about God's rule, God's work, God's person that way, hallowed, set apart, essential. And I said many times, these things are all glued together because the next phrase then is your kingdom come. And this is a, a vision, not, not of parameters and square miles, how big is your kingdom? It's much more the idea of kingship or rule or reign. And what Jesus wants us to think about is the fact that this, this, this kingship of God, this, this reign of God, that it would actually, it, God is already king of the world, but that it would actually permeate hearts and it would actually start to, to, to be lived out in the here and now. And then last week we saw the phrase, Thy, your, will, your will be done. And we got to consider the ways in which that invites us to, to dream about a world in which God's will is actually being done, to be honest about the fact that that will is actually not being done in our life or the world around us, and, uh, and to have our hearts be honest about that, which means that we're going to have some brokenness that we're going to feel and some heaviness that we're going to feel. But then to, you know, to, it's an invitation to a dream, it's an invitation to honesty, but then ultimately it's an invitation to trust. That if we have the audacity to say, your will be done, then what we're really saying is just like Jesus said in the garden, you know, not my will, 
but your will. That ultimately it's saying, Jesus, you know, God, I, I trust you. I, I trust you with my life. And that is easy to say and really hard to believe with your heart. But there's an idea there that until we can say your will be done, we're never going to really know peace. And so then, then, then Jesus says, on earth as it is in heaven. And it's this sense in which it's like God's name is hallowed in heaven. God's kingdom is in full in heaven. God's will is done in heaven. And so Jesus says, what we're praying is that that heavenly realm, all those realities that exist in the heavenly realm would show up here in full. And the great confidence that we have is that the trajectory of the story that we're in, that's exactly where it's headed. That God's rule and reign will be here in full. That God's name will be hallowed. That his will will be done. And these are, these are beautiful things for us to, to, to cling to and to long for and to wait for and to pray for, as, as Jesus says. You know, there's a, a little movement. I don't want to get too sidetracked side here, but there's a, one of the books on our book wall is by a guy named John Mark Comer. And he planted a church in Portland and him and a group of churches have a little byline and he, his church was in Portland. And so they said, you know, in Portland as it is in heaven, instead of, you know, on earth as it is in heaven, in, in Portland as it is in heaven, or you could say in Traverse City as it is in heaven. And on the one hand, there's something beautifully creative about that language that I really like. And I, I appreciate the mentality behind that phrase, but, but there's a danger in that, in that language. And the danger is that part of why Jesus is saying it the way he's saying it, he doesn't say in Jerusalem as in heaven. He says on earth as in heaven. So yeah, in Portland as in heaven, but just don't stay there. You know, in Traverse City as in heaven, yeah, but just don't stay there. Like we are longing for it to be on earth as it is in heaven. For every square inch, for every human heart, uh, for these realities to, to be uh, impacting uh, every square inch. Uh, in, in, on the earth, on earth as it is in heaven. That's the first half. Now, the second half, it moves from, from this orientation towards God, his rule and his reign, to uh, our needs and our relationships. And so the rest of the weeks that we're in this prayer, uh, we're going to be looking at these phrases where Jesus turns his attention more horizontal, where he's inviting this reality of what is it like to live on this earth? What is it like to navigate uh, the, the dust of the earth? And so let's, uh, let's take, it to, take a look at the first phrase of this second half. And you'll find that in Matthew chapter 6, and it's, it's the whole verse, verse 11. And it says, Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. So we'll start off by uh, considering it, what, what, what you need, what you need. A question, you know, do, do you assume too much about your possessions and your resources? Um, th think about your next meal. Do you even think about your next meal? Do, do you just assume it? Is it a foregone conclusion that there's going to be food waiting for you whenever it is time for you to sit down and eat? Or is it something that you are realizing that you're in need of? Something that maybe you should even ask God for? J Jesus is warning us with this little phrase we, we are more needy than we realize. I think that this is a little bit more complex than it, it maybe comes across in first impression. At the beginning of this chapter, in Matthew chapter 6, if you get to verse 8, and then you jump towards the end of this chapter, verses 25 through 34, what, what you see before the Lord's Prayer and after the Lord's Prayer 
we, we are told that we have a father in heaven who knows what we need before we ask. So in verse eight, we're told that, you know, God, God is, he's at work in the world and he knows what you need before you ask him. Then you get to verse 25 to the verse 34 and it says, you don't have to be anxious. You don't have, you don't, you don't have, to, you don't have to worry about this stuff that God provides for the birds, uh, which, you know, presumably do not pray. God, God provides for the flowers, which again, presumably do not pray. It even says that God sends the rain and the sun, which are his gifts, he provides on the evil and the unjust, which again, by inference, do, do not pray. And so surrounding the Lord's prayer, we have this indication that God is at work in the world on behalf of his kids, but then he's also at work in the world on behalf of the good of the world, where he sends sun and rain on the evil and the just, just like he sends it on the just and the righteous. So it's like, it's not like the, the Christian farmer's farm gets rained on and the non-Christian's farm doesn't get rained on. That only happens in cartoons. Like that, that, is, that is not the real world. When God sends rain, he sends it on everybody. When God sends sunshine, he sends it on everybody. He, he, he provides for the birds. He provides for the flowers. And they're not specifically asking him. So it's surrounding the Lord's prayer. It's not telling us that we have a God who is like necessarily dependent upon us asking him. He already knows what we need before we ask. He, he clothes the, 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 the flowers. He provides for the birds. He sends his rain and his sun on all people. In other words, God is so generous with his congregation or with his creation that he gives gifts even when we don't ask. Even when we don't ask him, he still sends his gifts. The, the, the birds and the flowers and, and, and the farmers, they, they, just, they just get God's good gifts. And guess what? So do you and I. So many of the things that have happened in our life uh, over this past week we, we went unnoticed by us. They were things that were presumed upon, that we assume should happen, that we think we deserve. And yet, the message of the Bible is that the God of heaven is at work in the world, giving you way more than you could ever imagine. You know, more than stuff, Jesus, in this prayer, is much more interested in the orientation of your heart. It's not saying that if you don't pray for your daily bread, then, oh, I guess you're going to starve. No, your, your father is so generous. He's so generous. He gives gifts like you can't even imagine. But Jesus is saying, what's going on on the inside here? How are you receiving those gifts? How are you thinking about these things that get poured out upon you? Jesus is suggesting that his followers recognize that all, everything they have ultimately comes from their father. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he basically says to them, everything you have is a gift. Why, why do you act as if you earned it? Why, why do you act as if you, it, like you, you made that happen? Like it, it's all a gift. It all pours out on you. So you know, like, just as an illustration, one thing that is really hard for us to separate ourselves from would be something like, insurance. Now, we have insurance salesmen in the room, and we're thankful for insurance, but just, but hear me out on this. In our day and age, insurance, like almost everybody has insurance, and if you don't, people are like, oh, you don't have insurance? But if you just go back in time just a little bit, let's just say a century or more, if you went back in time 
and your farm caught fire and your barn burned down and your fields burned down, you, you went from having a, a, a full operating farm to, to in poverty. Like there was no insurance covering the farm. There was no health insurance covering the doctor's bills. This sense of like having life insurance to cover the expenses that you're going to incur with your death or that you would leave for your family after you die. This world of insurance is something that didn't really exist in previous centuries. Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a world without insurance? Could you imagine like all, all of these potential tragedies that could fall upon you and literally just wipe you out? You know, when we first, the first house we bought in Traverse City was an old farmhouse. And, uh, you know, we got it. It had been foreclosed on. We got it for a great deal. It needed a ton of work. Some of you maybe remember that house. Um, it needed a lot of work. Um, but uh, when we went to, you know, get our insurance and whatever, we're looking at like what they want to insure it for. And they wanted to insure it for so much money. And like what we owed on it and what it was insured for, I was always like, man, the best thing that could ever happen to us is for this thing to burn down. And so every Christmas, you know, it's like we'd be going somewhere and Kim would be like, oh, did we turn out the Christmas light? And I'm like, or the Christmas tree? And it's like, I hope we didn't unplug the Christmas tree. Like this would be the best thing in the world. But that, do, you, do you understand what a distorted view of the world that is? I mean, there's wins with that view. You, you can put your head on the pillow and you can, you can actually be a little bit more confident about the security that you have. But that's not been the condition for the history of the world. You know, the psalmist, if you read through the Psalms in the Old Testament, it's not uncommon for the psalmist to say something like, uh, you know, like, I mean, this, in our language, like, oh, it's morning, Oh, it's morning. Isn't this great? It's the morning. And we're just like, man, that guy must be a morning person. Like, listen, you know what he's saying? We didn't die. Nothing ate us through the night. No one raided our village and killed all of us. I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever woken up in the morning and said, we survived the night. <laughs> Nothing ate me last night. Nothing killed me last night. Like maybe if you camp or something, but in your house... You're not thinking that in your house. And so this, this, this world of insurance has created for us a buffer around ourselves. Things like large savings accounts and digital savings accounts where even if your bank were to burn down, it doesn't burn your money down. Like we, we have security around us that can allure, it can be so alluring. It can be so uh, like a, a false front that can create us, to, can create this world in which we're navigating and we actually don't think that we're that needy. That we actually do have all of our stuff insured. And we do have our emergency savings fund. And then our long-term savings fund. And then our retirement funds. And we, we have all of this stuff all around us. And yet Jesus is, is inviting us in this prayer to recognize it's, it's not first and foremost about like, does, you know, does, do you have to twist God's arm to provide lunch for you today? But it's also not even just about like how many resources do you have? It's, it's actually trying to get down to a deeper level of how do you interact with what you have? What, what's your heart orientation towards what you have? To pray, give us this day our daily bread, it, it, that is meant to foster dependence and humility as we rightly recognize God's kindness to us. 
You know, St. Augustine, he adds an intriguing idea to this phrase. He says that Jesus was referencing something, he thinks, like Proverbs 38 and 9. And in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, this is what the, 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 writer, uh, the, uh, the, the writer of Proverbs puts. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Proverbs 30 in the Old Testament, they're looking at the world and they're saying, here's what's going to happen. Here's wisdom. Like Proverbs is a wisdom book. And it's saying, I've looked around and here's what happens. If you have a ton, you conclude, who's the Lord? I don't need him. I got food in my fridge. And if that goes bad, I can buy more. So the Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs says, yeah, I, don't, I don't want that. And then he looks and says, but those who are in severe poverty, boy, it, it, they're, they're tempted to steal. They're tempted to profane the name of God. And so the, the, the writer of Proverbs is looking and saying, I've observed the world and here, here, there's two ditches out there. One is to have too much and think I don't need God. And the other is to have too little and to blame God or, or to violate his good way. Augustine is saying that this phrase, um, give us this day our daily bread, is inviting us to boldly ask for God to provide what we need, but only to the level that is good for us, to have the audacity to do that. And in a world, and in a culture that is addicted to consumption, that's a scandalous prayer. That we ask God not to give us too much and not to give us too little. In other words, this is a prayer for necessities not luxuries. Maybe some of you are familiar with the author Yuval Harari. He's not a Christian. He, he wrote the book uh, Sapiens. He's written several books. Um, but in his book Sapiens, this is what he says. One of history's few, what he calls iron laws, laws that do not change, is that luxuries tend to become necessities and to spawn new obligations. Once people get used to a certain luxury, they take it for granted then they begin to count on it. Finally, they reach a point where they can't live without it. Have you noticed this? As you grow older, how easily luxuries become necessities. Now look, some of the luxuries are good. Some of the luxuries are less good. And some of the luxuries are bad. And, you know, but but we, we justify this movement in our life of necessities, uh, be, or luxuries becoming necessities. We justify it with all sorts of reasons. But if we're not aware, the end result is that we just consume more and more and more and consume it on ourselves. Again, the wisdom writer in Proverbs 27 says that the eyes of man are never full. The eyes of man are never full. That means there's always a lust for more. That means no matter how much you get, that normalizes. This is what happens with drugs. This is what happens with alcohol, that as you drink it or as you take those drugs, you eventually, you, 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 you get used to it. And then it's like, I need a little bit more to feel the hit. Well, this doesn't just happen with substances. It happens with our possessions. It happens with our resources. The amount of money that you used to make, it's just not enough anymore. And it's, we're not talking about cost of living raises. We're, we're talking about uh, the, 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 the desire for, for more. See, the life of Jesus, a Jesus follower, should be full of contentment and simplicity. 
Contentment, it comes from no longer needing your stuff to give you an identity. That you don't have to find your identity in that stuff. Like your identity is coming from somewhere else and you don't need to have all this stuff to impress yourself or to impress other people or to make you feel secure. You realize that you're a child of God and your father loves you, that he smiles at you and he knows what you need before you ask. This can enable you to buy what you need instead of what advertisers tell you that you need. I think you know this, but U.S. companies spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year to try to make you discontent. That's what commercials are. That's what social media ads are. It's trying to tell you that the thing that you don't have is the thing that you need and convincing you to, 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 to buy more. I went on a missions trip to Peru a few years ago with a, an electrician. And uh, as we were on our trip, uh, he was telling me um, that appliance, uh, appliance makers, and this was 20 years ago almost, but he was telling me that appliance makers now make their appliances to last in the ballpark of seven to eight years. Um, where they used to make them, you know, you, you might, your, your grandparent might still have a fridge from like 1940 in their basement. They used to be like tanks. Now they last like eight years. And this electrician said, here's why. It's not actually fully the uh, appliance company's fault. They found that people were constantly getting rid of good appliances because they liked the new style. And so they're throwing away perfectly good refrigerators. And the appliance company started to say, well, why would we invest all kinds of high quality stuff in a refrigerator that somebody's just going to throw out because they want the new color. You know, they, well, mine has water, but I want water and ice. Mine has water and ice, but I want hot water. You know, it's like what, whatever the feature is that you think you need. And, and this is just one of the examples of how advertising tells us you need more. If you can get that, then you'll find contentment. Our phones, our computers, our cars, our vacations, our clothes, all of it. And Jesus is telling you, you don't have to fall for that. You, you do not have to fall for that. We really can be thoroughly happy with our daily bread. Uh, we've been working our way through a guy, his name's John Smed. He put this little circle together and we've been working our way through it. And so if you hop down to where we are today, give us our daily bread, you see that instead of worrying for our present urgencies, we could actually find contentment, simplicity, and generosity. It's pretty beautiful. So first, what we need. Secondly, what others need. Because did you, did you hear the list in that circle? Contentment. That means that I'm satisfied with what I got. Simplicity. That means necessities instead of luxuries. And generosity. Wait, generosity? Like, where, where, did, where did that come from? What, what is this generosity about? I thought this was a prayer about my need for daily bread. Well, think about it. If you are free from having to worry about your daily bread and you are free from getting your identity from your stuff, then you are free to use what you do have in different ways. You're free to use what you do have for the sake of others. See, if all this is true, all this stuff in Matthew 6, in the Lord's Prayer, surrounding the Lord's Prayer, if that's all true, then your most important needs are known by a father who cares for you. And having a father like that invites radical generosity. You see, if, if you see that, then you don't know, then, then you do know, then do you know how you could start to actually use your resources? 
Instead of the financial desperation and anxiety that is everywhere in our society, this could actually produce confidence and contentment regarding your possessions, opening your heart and your hands in generosity towards others. If you believe that your needs will be met, then, you don't, then don't you think that that will cause you to be more ready to share with others? This is an abundance mentality instead of a scarcity mentality. That you actually believe that you have a father who knows what you need. And if that's true, then you can be more generous than you think you can be. You can actually open your hands and open your life and be part of helping others. And this has been the mark of Christians for the last 2,000 years. See, the Lord's Prayer should never produce apathy or passivity. I said this last week in regard to your will be done. When we pray your will be done, that's not saying just sit back and do nothing. Not, not at all. And the same thing here, when we ask God for, his, for, for our daily bread, that is not saying just sit on your recliner and wait, somebody will ring the doorbell and provide food for you. That, that's not what this is suggesting at all. The Lord's Prayer is not inviting apathy or passivity. Instead of apathy or passivity, it reorients the Christian to the fact that since we can be confident that our needs will be met, we can invest in helping other people's needs be met. That we can actually be part of seeing their daily bread be provided. Did you notice that when Jesus prays this prayer, he says, give us this day our daily bread? He doesn't say, give us this day my daily bread. Uh, Tim Tim Keller, uh, in his book on prayer, he just has a couple paragraphs on each of the phrases in in the Lord's Prayer. But in his his, uh, commentary on give us this day our daily bread, he elaborates on Martin Luther's thoughts on this part of the Lord's Prayer. And this is what he writes. To pray, give us, all the people of our land, that is, give us daily bread, is to pray against wanton exploitation in business, trade, and labor, which crushes the poor and deprives them of their daily bread. Ominously, he warns, this is Martin Luther, warns those who do injustice about the power of this petition. Let them be aware of the intercession of the church, And let them take care that this petition of the Lord's Prayer does not turn against them. So when Martin Luther reads, give us this day our daily bread, he sees this as a prayer for a prosperous and just social order that we get to be part of creating and maintaining. See, Martin Luther looks at this phrase and says, guess what? If the followers of Jesus all believed this phrase, we would create a much more just society. We would create a society where, where no one is lacking, where, where everyone, you know, we got an eye out for each other, where we're caring for each other, where we're helping each other out, where nobody is, is taking it all. You know, even in the Old Testament, there, there's this instruction about how to, how to harvest a field. And the instructions say, don't you harvest all the way to the corners. You leave the corners for the poor. And there's a sense there where it's actually saying, hey, businesses, don't take it all. Don't, don't, don't squeeze a market to where there's nothing left for anybody else except for the giant. Except for the one. You know, and I think you know this. You know, there's like four or five companies that have more money than like nations. And Martin Luther's looking at this phrase and saying, man, the people of God wouldn't function like that. Not, not if they're praying this phrase. 
there would be a sense of our daily bread that we actually get to be part of the answer to this prayer. We get to be a part of God's just and prosperous society that he wants to see fill the earth. You know, the season of Lent is a time of fasting and prayer and almsgiving. Almsgiving means generosity towards the poor. One way, one way to respond to the almsgiving is our mercy offering. And every year at Holy Week, we have a mercy offering. And that's just six weeks away. And as we lead up to that, we'll talk about it more and we'll share some of the ways that we've used our mercy funds over the last year. Uh, But some creative ways to think about that offering is if you gave $365, that would be equivalent to giving $1 to the poor uh, a day for the year. If you gave $100 a month, that would be like giving $1,200 to the the mercy fund. You could give a paycheck. You could give a lump sum. You know, we invite you to be uh, creative in, in how you participate in that. Uh, In the last few years, we've seen uh, the generosity in that offering increase from this congregation, and it's exceeded $40,000 multiple times over the course of just that window uh, where we uh, we invite you to participate in in our mercy funds. And listen, here's here's what I want you to to hear. When when you give a dollar to our general fund, you you are giving a dollar to the gospel work of Sojourn Church. That pays for our building, that pays for our salaries, that pays for our missions efforts, that pays for our ministries, that that pays for all that stuff. uh, So you give a dollar, that's where it goes. When you give a dollar to the Mercy Fund, 100% of that dollar goes to help those in need. It gets kept in a separate fund and every dollar is, is distributed for that means. And so I love seeing our generosity towards that fund because that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, hey, together, this is, just, this is just one way, but hey, together, this enables us as a church to help those in need. And so we love our mercy offering and we have been so, so thankful for it. But as amazing as that mercy offering has been, I want you to know something. It pales in comparison to the generosity that is on display from this congregation year-round. I hear stories all the time of community groups bonding together to, to, to paint a bedroom or to fix a car or to pay for dental work or to buy groceries. And then if you take into account all of the volunteer hours that are offered from this congregation, and some of them, very few of them, we, we organize the vast majority of the volunteer hours that are done by this congregation are not spoon-fed by our, our church. They're not organized by Sojourn. And part of that is we don't want to organize it. We, we don't want to spoon-feed it because what we want you to do is say, what is God tugging on your heart to do? Like if we organize everything, then yet we might have some great pictures and some really great stats to share about this event or that event at the annual meeting. But man, don't you love the picture more? of saying, man, if, if, if you know of a situation or you've gone through a situation and there's an organization in our town, in our city that, that, that's trying to reach into that area, go serve with them. And we're trying to create margin in our church so you have time to do that. And we wanna see you go do it. You, you, you heard Kathy Hackelman just share. Like we do, our church organizes and does one week of Safe Harbor a year. And it's incredible. I love being part of it. I hope you're part of it. You can sign up right after the service. It's an incredible thing. But there are multiple people in our church who help with Safe Harbor throughout the year. And that's not because anybody in our church went to them and said, you know, it's, that's just them saying, man, I, I want to use my gifts to bless the homeless population, to be part of this story of caring for people who are in need. 
And so the, the Lord's prayer, when we, when we pray this phrase, give us this day our daily bread, that actually has something to say about our business practices. That has something to say about our generosity towards the poor with both our time and our money. It's, 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 it's a scandal. This is, this is a life-changing phrase that often can get like boiled down to some sort of like, make sure you pray before you eat. Boy, is it more than that. So what we need, what others need, and then let's close with who you need. I've already said that we are dependent on God for every single thing. But the confidence that we have in our Father allows us to trust him to give us what we need, our daily bread, which in turn allows us to actually care about the needs of others, to be part of how God provides their daily bread. It's pretty amazing. Not only our needs, not only our family's needs, but the needs of others. This is actually revolutionary in the world. The way that Christians engage the poverty community, those in need, was unique in the world. But do you know that Jesus has even more to say about our daily bread? If you went back a couple chapters to Matthew chapter 4, right after Jesus is baptized and right before he goes public, the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness. The, the Son of God, the Spirit of God takes him into the wilderness. And in that wilderness, Jesus fasted for 40 days. And because Jesus was both fully God and fully man, guess what? Jesus fasted for 40 days. Jesus was hungry. He was real hungry. And while he was hungry, the devil shows up. And the devil says, um, you're pretty hungry. Wouldn't some food be good? And Jesus' body is crying out, I need my daily bread. And in the midst of this hunger, the devil tries to get him to use his divine power to turn rocks into bread. In the face of great need, Jesus declares, Man does not live by bread alone. You see, in that moment, Jesus is rejecting self-reliance. Could Jesus have turned rocks into, into bread? Yes, he could have. But he rejected self-reliance. Instead, he trusted his father to provide what he needs when he needs it. Do you know where this language, man does not live by bread alone, comes from? It comes from Moses talking to the people of Israel. And if you were to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, what we have happening in Deuteronomy chapter 8 is this. I'll go fast. God has rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. But as soon as he rescues them from slavery in Egypt, they are immediately tempted to like go into self-reliance, to make their own decisions, to reject God's direction. They make a false god and they worship it in the desert. Then they say, you know what, man? This, this is terrible. This wilderness stinks. Maybe it'd be better to go back into slavery in Egypt. At least, they, at least they gave us a meal. At least they gave us food. And so they're tempted with all of these ideas of self-reliance, of rejecting God's direction, of believing that God had cheated them. And in response to all of that, God gives them another lesson. It was called manna. God fed them, the nation of Israel, simply by the power of his word. See, that's one of the beautiful things about manna, is manna was like this, it actually says it's like a frost-like thing that was left in the, in the morning, and it was like a wafer on top of the ground. 
And it's a miracle for sure. But you know what else it's saying? Guys, you didn't plant this. You didn't harvest this. You didn't bake this. I gave this to you. You want to know where you got the wafer? I gave you the wafer. I provided for you. And God provides this miraculous manna to feed his people. They just wake up and there it is on the ground. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses says, this is what Moses says about God. He says, and God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, meaning you'd never seen this stuff before, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Moses says to them, you want to know what the man is about? The manna is about the fact that God spoke that into existence and that's what you need. You don't survive by bread. You survive by the word of the Lord. You survive by him speaking, by him giving gifts, by his kindness. That's what you survive on. And so then Jesus is in the middle of the wilderness and he's hungry and he's being tempted by Satan. And Satan says, turn the rocks into bread. You can do that. And Jesus says, no, man does not live by bread alone, what he's inferring there is he lives by the word of God. He lives by the word of God. Jesus is showing us that ultimately we need the word of God more than we need food. But Jesus goes even deeper. If we were to change gospels and hop over to John chapter 5, Jesus has this conversation with the Pharisees. And in John chapter 5, you know, this is not uncommon. Jesus has button heads with the Pharisees. And in, John, in the middle of John chapter 5, Jesus says to them, he's like, you know what, guys? You study the Bible like crazy. You have Bible studies so many times a week, and you've memorized so many verses, and you know it backwards and forwards, and you're like so committed to studying the Bible, but you refuse to turn to me. He says, you study the scriptures because you think in them is eternal life, and it is them that testify, but you refuse to turn to me. What, what, what Jesus is indicating there is that there's this sense in which the message of the gospel is revealed on the pages of God's written word, but it points us to a person. It's not just data points. It's pointing us forward to the person of Jesus. And if you know your Bible backwards and forwards, great. But do you turn to Christ and trust him? The Pharisees weren't. Well, then you go to chapter six and they're still kind of in this, this you know, back and forth. And they say to Jesus, in John chapter six, you can look it up. In John chapter six, they say, Moses called down bread from heaven. Why don't you call down bread from heaven? And Jesus says, it wasn't Moses that called down the bread. It was God that gave the bread. They don't get his point. And so Jesus twice in John chapter six says it as clear as day. I'm the bread of life. I'm it. I'm the thing that the father sent. I'm the bread that you so desperately need. I'm the one that you need that you will not turn to. They didn't understand what he was saying and Jesus could not have gotten clearer. I'm the bread of life. Your ancestors ate ton of manna. They eat a ton of manna. And guess what? They all died. That bread doesn't work. But this bread is the bread of eternal life. Anyone who eats of it will never be hungry again. 
will have life eternal. Don't you see, Jesus Christ is the ultimate bread, the bread that gives eternal life. If you have Jesus, then you have the food that fills you in the only way that matters. Now, we never stop needing him. We are not self-sufficient, but he promises to never leave us. So as we come to this table, have you been filled with him? Have you tasted his goodness and his love? Do you see how this levels the playing ground? Anyone who is in Christ is not in Christ because they are so good or so deserving. They are just someone who found the bread that is Jesus. Not only does our Father care about our physical needs, but in Christ, he has fully provided our spiritual need. A question that you can ask yourself today is, what do you think will nourish you? What do you think fills you? A new car? More money, longer vacations, a new house, a great feast. Those can all be good things. But Jesus says, in the end, that is going to leave you hungry. The only thing that can actually nourish your soul is Jesus, who is the ultimate bread. You know, Martin Luther, at the end of his life, they found a little note written by him, and it said, we are all beggars. This is true. And D.A. Carson wrote of Christians that Martin Luther's right. We are all just beggars showing other beggars where the bread is. That's the life of a Christian. You you, you didn't find the bread because you're so smart. You you, you stumbled upon this bread by the grace of God. And Jesus says it is available to all. This bread is enough to feed the world. Is all they have to do is come. So we invite you, as we come to this table, this is what we're rehearsing, that Jesus, this broken bread, he looked at his disciples and he broke this bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it and remember. If our service will please come, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this text. We thank you for this little phrase. Give us this day our daily bread and for the broad invitation that that invites us into. A gratitude, a contentment for the way you meet our needs, a generosity and a willingness to be part of meeting other people's needs, and then a humility of spirit, a recognition that we are in desperate need of of Jesus Christ, the ultimate bread of life, the only thing that will actually nourish our souls. Guys, we come and eat this bread and drink this cup as Jesus commanded us to do. Would you fill us with this recognition Christ on our behalf, Christ in our place, Christ for us, Christ rescuing us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.